I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacey Elliott. And this is GM from Decrypt. Okay, GM, GM, Stacy, and today it's all about Gnosis. GM, Dan, this is going to be a really interesting, I think very DeFi-focused conversation. There's a lot that I want to know, GNO, oh, man. about Gnosis. <laughs> <sighs> I feel yeah. like, you know, I, I remember, and Gnosis is definitely, it's been around for years and years, and I was talking to Liam Kelly about Gnosis this morning, who's our DeFi whiz, and he basically said, it's been a lot of things at different times, but if you've lasted this long in crypto through all these cycles, you're doing something right. And you know, I, I found a story on Gnosis on our site from 2019, and at that time, it was all about Gnosis as a decentralized predictions market. Mm-hmm. And they still have you know, dApps like that, but I think these days, you know, people think of Gnosis and they think of multi-sig wallet, um, which was rebranded from Gnosis safe to just safe. They did a token airdrop. Uh, it's a side chain. It's a stake chain, as Liam put it. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. And I, I think one of the really interesting things, particularly about their chain, is that they've been so deliberate in making sure that it's very accessible for people to become a validator, which is probably a foreign concept for anyone who's looked at what it costs to become a validator on Ethereum. I mean, on, for Gnosis, you need one GNO, which is at, at today's price is about $100. And, and, Much and that's more reasonable. Yeah, and that's it. And I think even the the hardware requirements and the compute power requirements are much lower. So they've done a really a ton of interesting things, I think, to try to really push decentralization and make sure that this can be as spread out and as decentralized as possible. And, you know, it's they've like you said, they've been around forever. So there must be something to it. Yep. And she's got a great background. I mean, she's frankly, she's obviously a genius. Like her science and (laughs) academic record. So so we should ask about that. Sure. Let's bring her on. Let's do it. Okay, Friederike Ernst, thanks for joining us. GM. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be on, Stacey and Dan. Lots of gnosis to dive into. So why don't we start this way? You know, we always try to keep the the crypto newbies in mind. It seems to me that Gnosis is truly an OG. I mean, if you've lasted this long in crypto, you know, you're doing something right. You've got a strong community, but there have been a number of iterations. I don't want to say pivots, but, you know, there was a time when Gnosis was primarily known as a predictions market. Is that fair to say? And now these days, I mean, it's a it's a staking chain. It's a multi-sig wallet. Uh, you did a token airdrop. There's a lot going on. W- what would you say right now is sort of the core offering of Gnosis? What is Gnosis today? Yeah, so obviously, originally, we kind of started as a prediction market. But basically, since then, we've built uh, many different applications um, with a common theme. So uh, mostly, it's been around the themes of self-custody, 
credible neutrality, provable fairness. Um, so we've built offerings like the Gnosis Safe, which is the number one multi-sig wallet on Ethereum. We've built CowSwap, which is an MEV-resistant DEX. And now we do actually focus on Gnosis Chain, uh, which is a credibly neutral and resilient-assisted chain to Ethereum. So you're you're actually a retired physicist, um, <laughs> as you call yourself in uh, your Twitter bio. Um, and you left to co-found Gnosis in 2015, is that right? Um Actually, Gnosis started in 2015 as a spoke within consensus. Mm -hmm. um, it was um, founded outside of consensus. It was spun out in early 2017. And that's when okay. I joined as a co-founder. Martin and Stefan were actually the two people who um, headed it inside of consensus. So I joined late. Okay. Um, so what, I mean, in crypto years, that's a long time to have been in the industry. What are some of the most striking changes you've seen kind of not so much within Gnosis, but like within the rest of the community? Oh, yeah. I mean, so on a superficial level, it's the influx and influx and outflux of various people groups, right? So um, the money bros, the VCs, the institutional investors, and so on. And with that, I think the um, the uh, ideology of the ecosystem has also shifted somewhat. Mm. So basically, it's maybe maybe shifted is the wrong word. Maybe it's splintered a bit. It's also one of the reasons why I intensely enjoy bear markets, <laughs> because <laughs> a lot of the money bros take off. Um, in terms of um, technology, we have come so far. So basically, if you if you think about um, what the landscape was was like in 2016, 2017, it, it was, you had to build all the infrastructure yourself. And, and so we did. So we built so many infrastructure projects um, just because we needed them ourselves. For instance, mm -hmm. that is how the save came about, right? So basically we knew we were going to do an ICO and we didn't ha have enough trust um, in the uh, multi-sig wallets that were around at the time. And we thought we could build something that was more secure. Um, and I think uh, if, if you look at the tooling that we had then and the tooling that we have now, it is a world of a difference. Mm -hmm. It's funny that you mentioned consensus. Uh, you know, Frederica, we also were, I guess, incubated as part of Consensus Mesh. You know, that was since 2018 when Decrypt started and then we spun out last April, so almost a year ago. Um, there's a lot there culturally, you know, when you talk about, I'm glad you mentioned the money bros, there's sort of, well, it used to be there was Bitcoin maxis and everyone else. Um, and at some point there were ETH people, I've heard them called Ethereans, which I never loved that term. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I want to push you a little bit more on, on where things stand today, that splintering. I mean, the way I see it, increasingly calling everything crypto is inaccurate. It's like too broad an umbrella. I'm, I'm eager for people to stop doing that because you'll go to like an NFT conference and it's all about art and culture. And those people have nothing to do with, as you say, the money bros, you know, the people who are just buying coins and hoping coin go up. Um, do you see things that way that there's sort of now totally distinct corners that have nothing to do with each other? I mean, the, the NFT, you know, JPEG flippers, they weren't mostly hurt by FTX, for example, they weren't, they weren't in that. I think it seems like that from the inside. I think from the outside, it's still a very small total market. Um, and I think if you look at where crypto could be in, in terms of pervasiveness, um, 
I think we'll stop thinking of crypto as crypto altogether at some point because it'll just become an integral part of you know the the new internet that we're building. Um, I wanted to to ask about you know you know Gnosis's position on validators, and I guess this is going to take this from <laughs> culture into getting a little more nitty gritty. Um, but one of the striking things I think about Gnosis Chain and, and some of what you guys have worked on is that you wanted to make it really accessible to become a validator. And I think, you know, for anyone who's been following crypto over the past few months, they would at this point be very familiar with the fact that it's very expensive to become a standalone Ethereum validator. Like I checked it today, I think it's like almost $50,000 um, to stake enough ETH. On Gnosis, it's only about $100. Um, so talk to me a little bit about kind of like the values and the idea behind that. Why is that so important? Yeah, that that was actually by design. Um, so actually making staking as accessible as possible was our number one goal when we merged with XDAI, um, which was uh, the previous iteration of Gnosis Chain. So basically it's changed name and um, mm -hmm. staking tokens since. Um at the time, it was um, a proof of authority sidechain to Ethereum, so one of the the earliest ones, um, token ID 100, um, and uh, there were like 20, uh, 20 entities that were allowed to build blocks. And to us, it was completely clear that while um, block space itself would become commoditized, truly decentralized, credibly neutral block space would not. Um, so kind of taking this to the next level, and getting as many homestakers um, to become validators as possible. This was our goal. And actually, at the time that we went through our merge um, in December of last year, there were in, a, in excess of 100,000 validators on Gnosis Chain. There's 115,000 validators today. That's 20% mm. of what Ethereum has. And we think um, there are certain applications that really have to have these trust assumptions that are offered by a credibly neutral chain. Um, and basically Ethereum alone and even Ethereum layer twos, they're just not going to be enough. So basically having someone whose values aligned um, closely integrated um, into this budding Ethereum verse, um, this, is, this is kind of where we're at, um, and we have geared everything towards credible neutrality and resilience. So um, we are a chain with um, several, both execution and consensus layer clients, just like Ethereum has. Um, we have um, trust minimized bridges to Ethereum. So um, basically everything that makes you feel good about putting data and value on Gnosis chain. Do you worry at all about centralization on other chains? Because, of course, Gnosis oh, yeah. Chain doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, you, you do connect to other chains. It's the whole, I guess, kind of point you could say of the whole ecosystem is that everyone's going to be able to interact with one another. Um, you know, to what extent do you try to interact with other communities and kind of push some of these values? Because I don't hear all chains talk about this quite the same way you do. Yeah. Um, so we push this on Ethereum. Um, so on Ethereum the level of centralization is, I mean, it's the most decentralized chain out there, but even on Ethereum, it's kind of worrisome. So basically, if you look at who's, who stakes, like in excess of 30% of Ether staked with Lido, um, mm -hmm. which, uh, I mean, it, it has 
you know, really tangible upside. So you get Lido staked Ether, which you can use as collateral and so on. So I see why people do it. Just bad for network health. Um, and then if you look at uh, if you look at um, other large stakers, it's the the exchanges. So it's Coinbase, Kraken, Binance. In excess, these four entities have in excess of 50% of the network. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's something um, that's really worrisome. Um, so, yeah. And I mean, Ethereum's the good case. The good case here, right? So basically, if you if you mm. go to likes the likes of Solana um, and uh, Polygon and Avalanche and so on, it's super super small numbers of validators. And yeah, uh, I think um, it's really easy to forget about um, the benefits of decentralization um, until you need them, <laughs> yeah. and then it's too late. <laughs> And I, I think if you if you, if you actually look at this from the get go, um, building on truly decentralized infrastructure is really hard. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you if you think about kind of building the exact same applications just on AWS, um, you would it would be cheaper and easier and a better user experience. Um, and then you build it on a blockchain um, that is barely a blockchain in terms of decentralization and you both you, you, you basically have the downsides of of both worlds um and uh, the upside is mostly marketing <laughs> and to me that is um it's not a great state of affairs mm-hmm. i know um i don't know like we've talked a lot about you know these what it's going to take to get a lot more people involved and onboard a lot more people. We've even talked about what it's going to take to bring more developers into the space, and you kind of got at it just there with how much easier it is to build on something if it is centralized. Um, so, do you think we can have both, where it's going to be easy but things will be sufficiently decentralized? I think we kind of have to to distinguish for which applications this is worth it. So, truly decentralized block space will always come at a premium, just because having um, uh, having commoditized block space that has some measure of security attached to it because there's multiple validators, that will always be a lot cheaper. So basically, as a developer, you kind of you have to ask yourself long and hard how how important is credible neutrality um, mm-hmm. to me? Um, how important um, is compatibility with Ethereum, or which are my main um, compatibility layers. Um, Do I rely on external liquidity? Um, Do I rely on other dApps that are deployed on the same chain? Um, And then basically what what kind of price point am I willing to tolerate for transactions? And I think basically based on that, it'll always be a trade-off, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can, you can, you can, I mean, you can actually kind of reframe this in terms of real estate right so basically you can you can be um in manhattan that's kind of the ethereum of uh, of this world and you can kind of buy a tiny micro apartment in a skyscraper and you will be just in the heart of it and basically everything's going to be accessible um Mm. and uh uh, but but it'll come at a premium right um Mm. or you could go over the bridge um I'd like to say I'd like to think that we are Brooklyn and not New Jersey, but you can go over the bridge, <laughs> and you can have a house a house with a garden, or at least you know a house with a second bedroom. So mm-hmm. um, this is this is kind of the trade off you have to make when you build. And I I I would love for that for this discussion to be more explicit that way, um, because currently I feel that there is a lot of tribalism 
And it's mm. like, come here, this is where the cool kids are sort of thing. Um, and I feel that's not really conducive um, to kind of finding the, the best um, configuration for everyone. Wow, Stacy. So living in New Jersey, you're just over on a side. Uh, so, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I did not know. I'm so used to it. It's <laughs> so funny. And and I, I'm in the suburbs as well, Frederica. I'm in Connecticut. Yeah, we're so both in the burbs outside great, of New York. Great analogy for the two of yes. us. Um, you know, you mentioned both moments ago and then um, in a recent talk uh, in January, you know, about Gnosis really wanting to make staking really easy for people to just do at home on their home computer. And um, I wanted to ask you about kind of the UX of crypto overall, because it seems to me that, you know, most of the things we're talking about here, you know, staking in any form, um, or you could use mining as an example. I mean, I remember years ago, um, it was Balaji Srinivasan, you know, who ended up going to Coinbase, but um, he had his company 21.co. And the initial value prop was they said, we're going to put, you know, a Bitcoin miner in your pocket. We're going to make your phone a Bitcoin mining rig. And, and it still hasn't really happened. I mean, you know, what do you think it's going to take, I guess, to reduce the the current, I think, high friction of all this? Yeah, I mean, there's several barriers to entry, right? One is capital requirement. And as you, Stacey, said earlier, it's currently in excess of $50,000 to run an Ethereum validator. Um, there's also fairly large technical requirements that you need to be able to um, to uh, uh, to lift. Um, so... There, there are solutions that kind of make it easier for you. Um, so things like Dapnode and Davado and so on, which are basically um, uh, little computers that you buy in the mail and they're kind of plug-in ready and you kind of just configure your uh, your validator right there. And then obviously you still need the 32 ETH. <clears throat> for Gnosis, it was a very deliberate choice to kind of um, bring down the staking requirement to one GNO. Um, and uh, you can also run... Uh, Gnosis validators on dead nodes, Avados, and so on. You can also just download the package um, and run it on your home computer, um, provided you don't regularly turn that off. Um, mm. We're trying to make it easier. So, so basically the end goal obviously would be something like um, in-browser staking. So you just have another tab open that kind of does that for you. Because in principle, the um, computational requirements shouldn't be too high to kind of make that happen and i think it in terms of network health it's just basically the importance of kind of having a diverse um, set of validators really can't be overstated yeah i guess you know as a follow-up you wonder what the future is for people getting involved in DeFi. i mean we're really talking about like how many layers down the rabbit hole are people willing to go you know it's it's both ux but also sort of like time constraints come into it. Um, you know, where Stacey and I are always kind of hyper-conscious whenever we talk to anyone at conferences of like, you know, right away, okay, what what sort of level is this person at? Is this a person mm -hmm. who's just like bought a board ape JPEG and that's it and they're into the NFT space? Or is it someone who they have some bags and so they follow news about, you know, the coins that they hold and they're, you know, they have their XRP and their Cardano and, um, or is it someone, you know, who's actually like staking ETH, you know, which I feel like requires a certain additional level of learning and understanding and in the old days you know an investment and in, you know a piece of equipment um so I, I sort of it's gonna be interesting to see where things go and it's like you said I, I just always think about that split um there's sort of tourists who are just investors in the space mm -hmm. and then there's the actual techies who are like engaging in the um 
the nuts and bolts or the picks and shovels of this of this industry, right? And it's still a pretty small number of people. Yeah, and you're forgetting like the largest user group uh, or the largest group, namely the users, whom we don't have too many of, right? So basically currently mm -hmm. it's developers, mostly developers and speculators. No one's really in it for the applications themselves. And I think this is kind of where we need to get to. So basically whatever you'll use on Web3, be it a social media app, be it some sort of open finance protocol and so on, it has to be strictly better than what you, you have access to in the legacy world. And then... On top of that, the usability, it's a huge problem. I see it as the number one pro problem right now um, in this space. Probably more of a problem than scalability, but you know, it's, it's a bit of a toss-up there. Um, so in terms of usability, if you try to onboard someone into this ecosystem and you say, okay, take your phone, download MetaMask, um, and then it starts. These are your 12 words, <laughs> you know, uh, put them in several places because you, you can never lose them, but also put them in no places because you can't ever show them to anyone because both, mm -hmm. both things will kind of lose you all your tokens. This is a terrible user experience and doing that kind of right off the bat for onboarding someone That's just a non-starter. So basically what I think we really need in this space and what's also firmly the first thing on the roadmap for Gnosis Chain this year is account abstraction. Um, so basically what that means is that every, um, every account by, by default um, is a smart contract um, account and that lets you onboard people a lot more easily. So say with um, their email address because you can custody their keys and they can swap out the keys later if they so choose or they can use a third party custodian. Um, they can also let you custody their keys forever if that's you know what floats their boat, but mm. they don't have to. It's like, it's not like um, a thing where you kind of You, you do it once and then you're locked in with that account. You, you just you rotate keys and you can do that as often as you want to. And to me, that is kind of the bare minimum to kind of get um, normies um, into this space. I'm glad yeah. you mentioned account abstraction. It was actually on my list to kind of ask yeah. you to explain that to newbies. I mean, if we go just a step further, like, is that something that isn't really happening yet? No one's doing that. And how hard is that to implement across the whole kind of DeFi landscape, you know, chain agnostic, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So basically there's, um, uh, there is uh, a large movement in the Ethereum space um, that kind of wants to make that happen. It's difficult um, because it, it, in some ways, it kind of breaks downward compatibility. Um, and if you actually look at how long um, protocol upgrades are currently taking in the Ethereum space just because there's so much that's coming together, right? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, with uh, with withdrawals, um, dank sharding, and so on, it'll take probably two years, I'm guessing. Um, what, what we've kind of found is a way to kind of uh, be the guinea, guinea pig for this um, <laughs> to a certain extent. So you can also emulate this um, through relayers and we're working together with um, Gelato on this one. Mm. Gelato, you, you guys know Gelato, right? It's kind of like a decentralized backend kind of mm -hmm. to Web3. Um, it lets you automate certain things. Mm. Um, and the idea is to kind of implement this via relayer layer um, on Gnosis chain and see how this goes. And if it goes well, I'm pretty, um, I am a, uh, positive that this might make it to Ethereum core because it does not require protocol level upgrade. Hmm. 
Yeah, that that is a really good point. I mean, Ethereum is the Manhattan of, of crypto, or at least the not Bitcoin side of crypto. Um, and, you know, it does take a long, I mean, it takes a long time to do infrastructure projects in New York City. Same way it takes a long time to do upgrades to the Ethereum protocol. I didn't think we were going to do a bunch of real estate analogies, but it's a good <laughs> example. Um, it, it's interesting because being a, a smaller, lighter chain and, you know, a scaling solution allows you to kind of experiment and, you know, build more things that, you know, you wish existed on Ethereum. But as you point out, it could be two years before we see something like that. Yeah. Dan Grad, um, he recently did a tweet that I really liked um, saying that uh, basically Ethereum can't chance um you know, 30 seconds of downtime for two years of development work. So basically you have to do like uh, extensive testing and everyone, uh, everything because you can't, you cannot take the chance that the network goes down for even 30 seconds. And sure, basically, if you're not securing just as much, um, that um, trade-off looks differently, right? And I mean, obviously, yeah, that, that really can be a big advantage as well. We'll be right back after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, I wanted to ask you too about um, block segmentation because that that was not, and this is going to continue. I think the real estate analogy for us. <laughs> um, I, I remember seeing on the the talk you did back in January that that's going to be something that you guys are focusing on this year, and it was a really interesting idea because it means that if you get involved early, then a network should always be affordable for you to transact on. Um, can you can you kind of flesh that out a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. So what we've seen. Um, time and time again, is that the number one pitch for new networks was come to us, we're cheap, right? Mm -hmm. And as soon as they're successful, this is no longer true. So uh, because there's always, a, there's always a limited bandwidth for um, block um, space. Um, so basically, if, it, if the fee market um, really kicks in, you'll have to pay. Um, and the way that we thought about this is, um, okay, for Gnosis Chain, you have GNO. This is the staking token. If you have GNO, um, in in some shape or form, and I, I, I hope our lawyers don't hear this, you are an owner of the chain, right? Um, even if it's like you and uh, 100,000 other people, you, you mm -hmm. own part of it. <clears throat> so um, the argument is as follows. So if you have been on, on the chain for a long time or even just a short, a short time and you have, you hold GNO, you should always be allowed to post your transactions to Gnosis Chain. Just like when you, you know, if you bought um, um, an apartment in the meatpacking district in the 70s, um, you can still live in there today. You can also make bank and sell it, right? So mm -hmm. you can flip your GNO if Gnosis Chain becomes wildly, wildly successful and moves somewhere else. Um, but you can also stay in your meatpacking district apartment until you die and, you know, give it to your kids and so on. So basically, this is kind of the analogy. So there will be a segmented block space in, in, in um, 
in that sense that there is a block space for people who hold GNO and a block space for people who don't hold, hold GNO. So basically, if there's a premium on the block uh, on the block space for people who don't hold GNO, obviously that will be reflected in the price of GNO. And if you mm -hmm. feel like it's no longer worth it for you to kind of just, you know, you know, stay in that prime location uh, to kind of, you know, finish the <laughs> real estate ma yes. metaphor here. Um, Uh, you can move out. You can still buy a house somewhere else, um, but uh, you don't have to. Uh, just it's not because you're not a renter, right? You're you're an owner. Mm -hmm. Right. It, is that in any way, Frederica, a protection also against concerns that GNO would be seen by certain regulators as a security? In other words, a lot of people think, you know, lately it looks like they think every token is a security, but maybe it's helpful if you show that, um, you know, since since their litmus test is Uh, are you expecting profit from the work of others? You know, just saying, well, the original earliest community members are actually really core members and involved in adding value to the ecosystem. Does that sort of help uh, guard against that? And I guess I'm also asking your concerns about the regulatory environment in the U.S., obviously. There were no legal considerations for this, mm. uh, for, for this, uh, 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 for this uh, new development at all. Um, it's just that there's a lot of um, applications that live natively on Gnosis Chain that really rely on um, very low transaction fees. So one mm. one good example, for instance, is POAP. So um, you, you guys probably have used POAP, right? So basically mm -hmm. it's kind of, it's a proof of attendance protocol thing. It's at all conferences. You kind of ch check in and uh, people can see where you've been. And I mean, this is, this, This this heavily hinges on the fact that transactions are like a cent or below. Um, mm -hmm. If it if it'll cost like fifty cents to uh, uh, to get a POAP, you're not going to mint it, right? It's just mm -hmm. you're you're just ah uh, maybe not this time here. Um, <clears throat> so uh, yeah, the legal argument here really wasn't what swayed us to do this. Um, I do actually see um, the recent developments um, with respect to staking in the U.S. Um, in a pretty grim light. <laughs> to me, um, the bottom line seems to be like, okay, guys, speculation is totally cool with us, um, mm -hmm. but don't contribute. <laughs> And to me, they have it backwards. I mean, I mean, I don't know how, I mean, I'm not from the U.S., as you can clearly hear, but um, The recent action that was taking, taken against Kraken and kind of forcing them to shut down their staking as a service for um, uh, for for their users, to me, that's just really, really nearsighted. It's just, mm -hmm. it's difficult to kind of understand why they would draw, draw the line in the sand there. I mean, I totally agree that there's a lot of things um, in this ecosystem that should be um, that sh that should be kind of done away with probably maybe from a regulatory side or from mm -hmm. a law enforcement side or whatever but staking really i don't know it just seems weird and also it kind of <clears throat> people have been saying um, you know people who kind of try to see the good in everything have been saying that kind of mm -hmm. maybe this kind of drives people towards defi and i think to a certain extent that may be right But if you look at it um, from a macro level, um, 
using DeFi is really hard. Even just think mm-hmm. something like kind of using Lido to stake ETH. Um, principle is kind of the simplest thing you can do. Um, but it's still too hard for a lot of people. And basically you're putting users at risk because they're you're, you're kind of you're you're forcing them to take the training wheels off and kind of do it in an untrusted and unsecured environment because there are so many scams out there it's it's scary <laughs> yeah i mean there's i do think um to what you're saying there's an argument to be made perhaps that maybe rather than hitting kraken with an enforcement action there's you know maybe some advisory being put out saying, okay, you can offer staking, but don't guarantee, you know, these static returns or things like that. Cause I, I read through the, the legal paperwork a little bit and it sounded like the main problem was that they were saying, okay, you can have X percent return on this regardless of, you know, what they're actually receiving from the networks where they're staking people's money. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And I think Kraken also usually did stake. So because, for instance, Binance, they have this fake staking thing, right? So basically where they kind of, they they um, actually get tokens from the project themselves to let mm-hmm. users stake. And I, I used like air quotes here, which you can't see because this is mostly a podcast. Yeah. So sorry for that. Um, and basically you stake, air quotes, um, uh, tokens on Binance and you receive a guaranteed yield on those uh, tokens, but they're not actually staking them in the back end at all. Um, they, they are just giving um, our tokens from this treasury of tokens they receive from the project. So those tokens will become, uh, uh, you know, b- basically as a form of marketing. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, why don't you enforce against that? Obviously, that's that's a little um, iffy, um, but basically against uh, re- reputable exchanges who do actually stake, which you can see because by uh, because Kraken actually has like seven seven percent of you know the total ether staked in mm-hmm. existence, so they do actually stake. So to me, that's a bit uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, I, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think here in the states, a lot of the chatter too has been that Kraken is one of the firms that you know, on a lot of accounts was trying to play nice with the regulators was, you know, they've been trying to get a master account like Caitlin Long's Custodia has been trying to do. So yeah, it, it definitely rocked the the new cycle here for us. Yeah. And um, I guess it's a good, talking about regulation and the various approaches might be a good segue to, to ask you, Frederica, you know, do you guys see anyone as competitors? Like it's it's kind of becoming a a little bit of a crowded field. I mean, there's a lot Gnosis is doing, but when you talk about like Ethereum scaling solutions, you know, there's uh, Arbitrum and, and now Polygon has has gained a lot of steam. Do you sort of look around at, at that and, and think that we're sort of competing for users or that's not necessarily the case? I think I, I want to preface this by saying it's still so early. So I think mm-hmm. there's literally space for everyone. Um, and I think one of the... Um, core tenets of our belief system is that there's currently not enough decentralized block space. So if you look at what I like to call the Ethereum verse, so basically if you look at Cosmos, I mean, their their vision is kind of to have this um, decentralized network of networks that are trustlessly Mm -hmm. connected to each other by IBC. And we kind of have the same um, vision for Ethereum because Ethereum at some point kind of took this design decision um, to kind of build 
scaling on L2s more or less exclusively. So basically, you have like this inverted pyramid kind of scheme where um, L2s kind of do their own thing, but regularly post to Ethereum and so on. This does not um, scale indefinitely because mm -hmm. as soon as Ethereum fees go up, L2 fees go up as well. Um, and um, basically, if you think back how... Um, roll-ups were actually initially perceived, they were meant to be liminal spaces. It's even in the name, right? So basically, you had like a bunch of transactions that were too expensive for mainnet. So you would kind of roll them together and kind of post like the combined result to mainnet. So the mm. idea was was never for people to, um, to to live exclusively on layer two. It was, it was always for people to kind of um, uh, exit or be able to exit to layer one whenever. And this obviously only works for for assets that natively live on layer one right so anything you mint on layer twos can't you can't exit to layer one so mm -hmm. in that way it's kind of moved um, despite the fact that the name state it's kind of moved into you know from this liminal space into this new forever home right mm -hmm. so basically this is now where ecosystems live and so on and a lot of the trust guarantees that you have um, from Ethereum are no longer as good <laughs> for layer twos because a lot of the assets don't natively live on layer one. And even if they do, um, it becomes often economically unviable to actually exit them to layer one, right? So basically say you have an NFT collection on layer two, in principle, you could uh, you, you might be able to exit them to layer one if they were all minted on layer one. Um, but Basically, it's not going to compress your state. So basically, the original in the original vision was meant for something like a futures exchange, where basically you, you trade back, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and then mm -hmm. you kind of exit one number to layer one. And that's kind of the way that the compression worked. It doesn't really work for all kinds of dApps, and it most certainly doesn't work for non-native assets. So um, that kind of scaling, while it's really powerful for some things, we think it's definitely not the end all and be all of of, of scaling. Um, so what I think <laughs> you need um, is this inter-Ethereum protocol, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's kind of like the analogon to the inter-blockchain communications protocol from from mm -hmm. uh, from Cosmos, uh, letting uh, Ethereum-based chains interact with each other natively um, with. Uh, Trust as bridges with um, the same sort of uh, sort of clients, similar trust assumptions. That means lots of validators, also kind of like on Ethereum. And mm. then you can kind of choose and pick where to deploy and what kind of trust assumptions are important to us. So, um, if you look at um, the EVM chains, there's a couple that um, might seem like like competitors. Um, for instance, you, you mentioned Polygon earlier. Um, I don't actually see them as an integral point, a part of the Ethereum verse, um, just because, I mean, they use different clients. They they have a capped number of validators at 100. You have to apply to become a validator. Um, mm. That's not really the trust assumptions that we stand for. Um, so basically, to, to us, really, it's kind of like being Ethereum's little sister. And obviously, there should be many more siblings to kind of make this Ethereum verse whole. And the, the L2s that live on Ethereum, I don't want to knock them. I'm just saying they're not great for every use case. We mm -hmm. have we have the exact same layer tools on Gnosis chain, by the way. <laughs> so yeah, definitely not knocking them. They're super useful for many kinds of applications, but this is not the silver bullet. 
that's a, a very sort of um, respectful way to frame it, I think. And I like the sibling analogy, yes. uh, you know, because you, you guys are, are focused on the Ethereum verse, as you say, I'm just curious, what do you make of some of the other kind of newer chains or L1s? I'm thinking of something like Avalanche. Um, you mentioned Solana earlier, earlier in the conversation. I mean, do you see those as kind of duplicative and, and we only really need Ethereum and, and the things that have come from EVM? I think a lot of these chains have really interesting technology, but I think technology is not necessarily where this battle will be won. Um, I think community is just as important or more important. Um, so basically, if you look at the developer mindshare that the EVM crowd has, it's enormous. It's much bigger than um, any of the non-EVM chains. And then I think what Ethereum and Gnosis chain and um, that really have going for them is that they're not basically what I would um, somewhat disparagingly call VC chains. So basically, if you deploy on you know any number of um, other chains, you're primarily enriching very small group of already rich investors. And I don't know in as how much that's really aligned with um, the values that the devs to kind of build the applications um, really hold. Why don't you name all the chains you think are VC chains? <laughs> nice try, Dan. Nice try. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask about your decision to leave academia and, you know, kind of come and work in. Actually, I'm not even sure I should call it crypto or at least start working with Gnosis. Because um, we just <laughs> talked about how, you know, crypto is not a panacea at the top of the podcast. Um Tell me about that decision and you, just how different things are here from academia. Or are they the same? I don't know. In some ways, they're very different. In some ways, they're really similar. So mm. I kind of gravitated towards academic science because building new things, testing hypotheses, um, and finding things out just gives me an insane amount of pleasure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just really enjoy doing that. Um, I left academia because I felt like the high-level incentive system in academia was misaligned with um, the societal value of academia. So basically, I, I mean, I fared fine. Um, I, I got a PhD here in Berlin. I did postdocs um, at Columbia and Stanford. I got a professorship at the University of Hamburg. So kind of, I was, I was, I was, I was, Playing okay, I it went fine for me. I'd but say more than okay. I, <laughs> but I feel um, kind of the the general incentive to kind of contribute towards humanity and kind of make things better was misaligned with the um, the individual incentives for each researcher, mm. and. Um, I was 30 and I asked myself, do I want to do this for like the next 40 plus years? <laughs> and the answer was no. And mm -hmm. I kind of struggled to kind of, um, I had struggled with this decision for a while because in academia, once you're out, you're out. Um, right. you, you, it's a one way, it's a one way door. And I was also not certain where, um, where my talents would be appreciated like they were in science, but without the mismatch, because it's kind of, it's a very peculiar list of um, requirements for a kind of position, right? Kind of you mm -hmm. want, I want, I wanted to do things where I could kind of decide which direction to go and kind of shape the entire thing, but also build something useful. 
And it turns out crypto is just that because basically what we've been doing for the past um, well, six years in my case and eight years in Martin's and Stefan's case um, is kind of build tooling to kind of give agency back to people. And I think this is something that is really needed in this day and age where too many people feel and actually are pretty disenfranchised. It's a great answer. Um, you know, I, I often like to ask people how you explain or defend crypto and blockchain tech and why it matters. And that's a great capsule answer right there. Um, let's end on this, Friederica. We always like to remember that everyone is also a person outside of their life in crypto and blockchain and tech, and in your case, science. Uh, what are you into? What are your hobbies and interests? What have you uh, been into lately? Either what you're reading, watching, uh, when you're not you know, uh, up to your eyeballs in Gnosis stuff. Um. Yeah, I actually, I read tons. I kind of, I use reading kind of as a means to kind of calm me down at the end of the day. Um, mm. I also spend a lot of time on the playground because I have three little kids. So basically it's like literally work and kids and sometimes I read a book. <laughs> I'm a little mm -hmm. bit boring that way. <laughs> that really closely mirrors what my answer would be. I have a one-year-old. So. <laughs> Actually, 14 months. Yeah, he's he's nearly running around. <laughs> um, what's a good book you've read recently? I was just going to ask that. Um, fiction or nonfiction? Both. Ooh. Yeah, can we have one of each? Um, yeah. Um, Jennifer Egan, um, mm -hmm. she wrote a uh, book uh, named A Visit from the Goon Squad, which is kind of like an episodic book and like there's like 13 little stories. Um, it's been around for a while. I think it's been around 10 years. But last year, she actually wrote a follow-up book called The Candy House. Really nice. Go read it. It's fantastic. I read the first one. I did not know she wrote a follow-up, so I'm very she glad did. I asked this question. <laughs> it's funny. So <laughs> I didn't love Candy House, uh, Friederica, as much as Goon Squad. I thought it was fun, but you know, some of the little vignettes just kind of missed for me but i i did think the concept was really smart of the the memory box you know yeah i agree yeah no that's that that's i i totally hear that in terms of um non-fiction i really enjoyed um this book that the chip the great chip war or the chip war um about um semiconductor manufacturing um it mm -hmm. came out um i think earlier this year probably in january or so um it was super interesting um because it turns out the technology to actually make the the leading edge version of you know chips um, is actually really concentrated. So basically, there's a Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company TSMC, and then there's Samsung, and those are literally the only two companies who can do it. And everyone else, so I mean, Intel is kind of lagging edge, so they can kind of do some of it, um, mm -hmm. but everyone else is, you know really quite a long way behind them. And it also, guess how much it costs to kind of spin up one, one uh, uh, fabrication site <laughs> that's leading edge. I know because uh, TSMC recently, um, it, it was actually, it was in the US news. So uh, mm -hmm. TSMC promised to build two of those in Arizona. Biden was bragging about it. It's 10 billion each. Oh my god! So yeah, it's ten billion <laughs> to kind of build a single site, and that that doesn't even buy you the people because obviously it's very specialized talent, and um, yeah. there's very few companies who kind of dominate the market also in terms of um, the the technology that you need to actually um, 
to manufacture anything. So like uh, extreme UV lithography and so on is like literally <laughs> one company um, yeah. that kind of makes those lasers. Yeah, it's crazy. Super interesting. Um, so the great chip war. I have to pick that up. <laughs> Good so endorsement. Yeah. Well, great stuff, uh, Friederica. Thank you so much. I feel like we got a Gnosis crash course now. <laughs> thank you for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. That's our show today. Thanks for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to GM wherever you podcast. And if you head to our website, decrypt.co, you can find the full videos of every interview with every guest. Finally, we have a Telegram room for our loyal GM listeners. The address is t.me slash GM podcast. If you pop in there, you can get direct access to the co-hosts. You can suggest future guests, submit comments, and ask questions. It's t.me slash GM podcast. GM. GM.